This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Today, we will try to separate the bluster and baloney from the real state of NAFTA negotiations and the reality of the peril Canada faces if we do not capitulate to Donald Trump's demands. As we all know by now, yesterday, Trump trumpeted a bilateral deal with the Mexicans and threatened to impose a 25% tariffs on our auto experts if we don't toe the line and sign on to the agreement by Friday. The markets reacted positively. They see the progress with Mexico as a good sign. Amid all this, there are conflicting interpretations of whether they need Canada or not. That's the U.S. and Mexico. Some say the fact is NAFTA can only be revised if Canada agrees to implement the package after a full review and parliamentary consent. What do you think? The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, we are going to two people with very much involved. Jerry Dias, president of Unifor Canada and international competition and trade lawyer, Mark Warner. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Okay, uh, let's start with Jerry. Is this good news or bad news or somewhere in between? Well, I think it's somewhere in between. I think the moves as it relates to the auto industry were quite positive. Um, Frankly, their proposals that Canada had made, I think of increasing the content uh, for a vehicle to be sold tariff-free to 75% will really bring some of the technology that's been developed in Europe and in Asia to the North American market. And I also think that the the fact that at least 40 to 45 percent of a, of a car, content in a car, has to be made with wages of at least $16 an hour really should stop the straight migration of jobs from Canada to the United States to Mexico as it relates to the auto industry. So I think it's about leveling things out. I think it's an opportunity to raise in a significant way the standard of living for Mexican workers. But I also think that, once again, it really should be an opportunity to stop the bleeding. But obviously, with the positive, there's going to be some negatives. Well, yeah, and it, those things, I think, are not the sticking points with Canada. Mark, in the past, you have warned people against disregarding Donald Trump's threats. I mean, I, I'm sure he has no compunctions about slapping a tariff on if we don't do what he wants on uh, supply management or any of the other sticky issues. Yeah, I'd say in general, my view is that in Canada, both pundits and some Canadian lawyers have a tendency to understate what Donald Trump can do by his inherent executive authority as president, and they tend to overstate the extent to which Congress can actually step up and stop him. It's, it's what basically it's the old rosy scenario. Um, unfortunately, I think that's what Canadians are, are digesting in their newspapers every day and have come to believe it. Um, but an American president, you know, whether it's pardon power or whatever else, has tremendous powers. Few have chosen to use it. Trump has 
tested the limits of his executive authority in every other area. I don't know why anyone doubts that he would test it in trade. And Congress has not, you know, Congress has lent certain powers to presidents in the past on trade for trade negotiations. And Congress would have to take those powers back from him. I just don't think we've seen those profiles encouraged in terms of uh, American Republican uh, members of the Senate, much less so, even less so, uh, in the House. So if Canada's banking on a strategy of, of what I call the chaos theory, you know, continue the hard line over the next week or two uh, of negotiations in the hopes that if it all gets thrown into Congress, the uh, congressional supporters of Canada will come riding to the rescue. Personally, I think that's fantasy. Um, fantasy poker, perhaps? Um, I, just one more question before we get to Jerry, and I don't want to get in the weeds on this, but my understanding is, yes, he can rip up the deal, but in terms of the new deal, the bilateral deal, uh, Congress would not uh, have to fast-track that under the rules, or they wouldn't even have the authority to fast-track it. And in that case, it wouldn't be ready in time for the change of power in Mexico. I, I, am I understanding it correctly, and, and is that some kind of lever? Mark? Um, no, I don't think that's true. Again, I, I would characterize that as something that, again, you're going to be reading in Canadian newspapers under the rosy scenario. The truth of the matter is we, the, the, the Trade Promotion Authority... Is, is a very uh, contradictory uh, sort of document. But at the very least, it, it seems to me that under, under what, what he could do is submit this agreement into the Mexican part of the agreement um, and, uh, and try to get that through. If Congress goes along with him, then it goes through. I mean, essentially, these are rules of Congress. These are not hard and fast laws in some sense. If they want to accept that as a valid way of proceeding. The other thing he can do, which is what he's threatened to do, is terminate NAFTA, and as I said earlier, that's clearly within his authority as president to issue that termination of withdrawal uh, notice to Canada and Mexico. And if he wants, he can renegotiate, he can submit a whole new agreement and start the clock running all over again. TPA, TPA is not specific to any type of agreement. It, under the TPA authority, you can negotiate uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the renegotiation of NAFTA or the Korean deal. It's not specific. So, it's, again... I know Canadians want to put the most positive gloss on all this, but the president has power in their system. And um, if you're you're going to premise the strategy of responding to Trump based on the idea that he won't use it or he doesn't have it, um, they're in a very dangerous territory. Jerry, what's your take on that? Because, again, I don't think the uh, big sticking issues are, are in your area. Well, there's no question. He keeps highlighting the issue of supply management. Um, talking about our system, talking about the fact that they don't have, in his position, fair access to the Canadian market, the 300% tariff. So that seems to be his political lightning rod or his go-to argument. Um, but the other side of it is you know, the U.S. administration does a pretty good job of subsidizing industries that they feel are important as well. Just take a look at the agricultural industry where they subsidize over $20 billion a year. The oil industry, about $22 billion a year. So it's not as if they approach this with clean hands. So I do believe he is very much posturing. I believe he's very much bargaining. But I do believe that he's the type of an individual that would pull the trigger. Um, so you can't unilaterally disregard what he's saying. But in fact, if he was to slap, for example, a 25% tariff on the auto industry, he wreaks havoc on both sides of the border. of all parts that go in a Canadian assembled vehicle come from the United States. Uh, We're the number one auto export 
market for American-built vehicles. So the question becomes, does he shoot himself as well as shooting us? And that's and that's the wild card with all of this. So he doesn't care. Pos- I don't um, think he I don't uh, think he cares. And as long as he can spin it politically and his base believes him, I don't think he cares. Well, I'm not convinced he cares either, and I think that's the that it's the political economic uncertainty uh, that creates concerns for everybody. But one thing that I do understand, as long as there's this economic uncertainty going on, companies, you're right, they're not investing in Canada, not investing in Mexico, but they're not investing in the United States either. Everybody's kind of put a hands-off approach until they see how the dust settles. So, but I would, I think it would be one heck of a mistake for Canada to approach the next few days from a position of weakness. I mean, I understand that everybody's past the stage of bluster, but along the same lines, folding doesn't make a lot of sense because you're making an agreement that's theoretically generational. So, you know, you're going to have to hang tight in areas that are important to your own uh, to your own nation. Uh, let me a- ask a oh, question. Oh, sorry. sorry, on on this supply management thing, and again, I don't want to get into the weeds. So the, it's, he's all exercised about this three hundred percent tariff. But my understanding is that there is a level of uh, exports that uh, are under the tariff that go in tariff free before the tariff kicks in, and that the total amount that comes into our market is not very much above that. So isn't that an easy? concession to make, unless I guess you think the Americans will flood the market with dairy products. But here's the truth about dairy. Pardon? Uh, The the, the truth of... Sorry, I was going to say, Mark speaking, but the the truth of the... The truth about dairy is that every other one of our trading partners thinks that we are wrong. I know that for the last year and a half, we've had this sort of game we've played where we try to pretend that every issue that Trump raises is an issue of Trump versus Canada. You will find that Australia... And our European friends, everybody thinks we're wrong on supply management. So I think that ought to give you an indication when you hear these counterarguments put forth by the industry. When people characterize these parts of a deal as being somehow bad, remember, they're actually good for consumers. I mean, it results in lower prices to consumers. And that's a positive thing. So a lot, and that's, the comment there would be a lot of what we're hearing now about concessions. I, I don't like the language of concessions because... For instance, if you take some chapter without getting too far into the weeds, the Chapter 19 trade remedy chapter is almost never used. And the reason for that, or one of the reasons for that really clearly, is the Americans don't comply with it. And another reason for it is that uh, it predates the existence of the World Trade Organization dispute settlement system, which, is, which came into effect in 90, 1995, years after the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement created Chapter 19 trade remedy review system. We don't use it very much. So to say that you're going to sacrifice the auto industry in Canada out of national pride of keeping a chapter of an agreement that we barely use is idiocy. It's not strategic genius. It's just, it's just idiocy. Jerry? But I, dis- but I disagree with your position on Chapter 19. You need a dispute mechanism in order to, it, you know, you can't have any sort of an agreement unless there's a dispute mechanism. And having a dispute mechanism that's based on the, uh, the U.S. system doesn't make any sense to me. The only reason that we've had any peace in the softwood lumber prior to, of course, Trump slapping on the latest tariffs is because of Chapter 19. So I don't know how you can have a trade agreement with the United States and with Donald Trump without having some sort of a mechanism. The other part, you know, if you take a look at, you know, some of the other provisions where, you know, ISDS, 
who's the number one most sued industry in the our country under ISDS? It's Canada. So ISDS. You know, so I agree on I agree on getting rid of the ISDS, which is the investor state piece. But Chapter 19, uh, I don't yeah. know how we can have an agreement with Donald Trump without a dispute mechanism. Uh, that's a- let me go back to that, because I think that's really important. If I could just sort of jump in on it, because I think that's a really crucial point here. Now, when Chapter 19 was sold to Canadians back in 1988, and I... That's the dispute. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Just, yes, uh, right. did, let's, not, let's not talk about Chapter 19. That's exactly. the okay. dispute exactly. resolution. And the feeling is that well, if okay. we have to go through American courts, we won't get a fair shake. So this is correct. Okay, so impartial. I want to go back on that because the point I want to make here, because I think this is crucial, that particular chapter is not a, really a dispute resolution system. That's the point I want to make. That is the way it was sold in Canada. All that that chapter does is sets up a binational group, a panel that reviews the findings of anti-dumping or countervailing duties based on American agency according to American law. Now there are a bunch of I, I think there are a lot of people in Canada that think this is like the world court. It is not. If it is functioning properly, it should yield the same results as an American court. It's really that simple. And that's what we're really talking about. And that's kind of why it's not as important in 2018 as it was in 1988. And one last comment about that on softwood lumber, because this is crucial. The reason we got to peace on softwood lumber 10 years ago, or uh, on softwood lumber just over 10 years ago, was because after Canada lost to Chapter 19 and the Americans refused to compile, comply with the ruling, the American lumber producers marched off to the federal court in the United States and said that Chapter 19 is unconstitutional. And putting my American lawyer hat on, it is unconstitutional. And it'll happen every single time that Canada wins. And that's why it's a stupid thing, a stupid thing to draw a red line over, because we will always lose that battle. Always. I'm not convinced that it's going to be a red line, but I don't know how you have an agreement with the Donald Trump administration without a dispute mechanism that has a resemblance of fairness. There's no question how the Chapter 19 is structured, but there's also crystal clear that Canada has done quite well under Chapter 19, especially on softwood lumber. We never lost one case. So whatever yeah, the mechanism is, it has to be proper. They didn't comply with the ruling. Um, they don't yeah, comply it, with the ruling. So okay, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to jump in here. I can see that you both disagree on this, but I think that uh, are we agreeing that at the moment this is a big sticking point? I think the, I think the government has boxed itself, painted itself into a corner on it, and I think given that the fact that the, Mex- the Mexicans apparently have traded it away, I don't think we're going to be on very strong grounds to keep it, especially if you also want to keep something like supply management. So we're going to have to trade. And ultimately, the, the question for the, for the government is going to be, do you want to destroy the Canadian auto industry the 20, with 25% tariffs and a lot of uncertainty, or are you prepared to make a deal? And, and that's going to be the question. I hope, they want to, I hope they're not playing chicken with the Canadian economy. I hope they want to make a deal. And... Uh Jerry, um, do you think that their stance, I mean, a lot of people are saying you just got to give Donald Trump a victory or the appearance of one. I mean, is there a way of doing that? uh, Or is the Canadian government equally concerned with saving face? Um, I'm not convinced it's about saving face, uh, but I think it's about ensuring that we have a deal that works for everybody. Nobody in Canada or Mexico, for that matter, is looking to throw Donald Trump a victory party. So whether or not he's looking for a victory, that's one thing. But ultimately, it has to work for everyone. Like, for example, if you take a look at what Mexico gave up to get this deal, 
I mean, they really gave the U.S. what they were looking for in, in many circumstances on intellectual property. They have agreed to increase the, the period of time on drug patents, which I know is going to cause us problems. I know the whole if, issue of the whole de minimis levels as it relates to duty-free. Uh, the Mexicans double the level. I think it will probably cause Canadian retailers some grief, but it will make consumers happy. So I think there's enough areas that we can find some commonality on without anybody having to hit a major political home run. Mark? Yeah, I think, you know, the Europeans went, the Europeans went to make a deal with them, and they actually sort of gave them something symbolic in terms of the, the, the um, uh, those beans. I always forget the names of those beans, but uh, the soya beans that, the, that they wanted to purchase. Oh, other things. The Mexicans made a big concession in terms of labor and autos, as Jerry just told. And look, honestly, the idea that Canada is going to get out of this with dealing with concessions on what I'll call new age trade issues, again, is fantasy. We're going to have to throw something in the window that Trump can actually trump it. And if we don't do that, I'm afraid we're heading for the chaos scenario. Okay, let's hang on, guys. Let's take a couple of calls. We've got Bob in Etobicoke. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? I'm watching this as, uh, you know, what's going on. And my problem I see is the fact that um, our Prime Minister and Christian Freeland have made some smart remarks about Donald Trump, and I think that they should be replaced. The Prime Minister should step aside and pull her back and maybe send people who um, they, don't, they don't have, a, you know, Trump doesn't have a problem with. Maybe our former Prime Minister, and he'd probably do the job, but they should be given complete authority. So when, when they go there, sign the deal, the deal is done. Because well, he's, he's kind of said a lot of things about our prime minister, and I think they've been pretty moderate at not reacting to it. Yeah, well, I don't, you know, like, I don't like, well, first of all, Christian Freeland, when she sent that text to Saudi Arabia, I think she should have been removed and removed from government. And I do not like the way they handled it. Trump is the kind of guy, you better pay attention. He is fair at the end of the day, but do not... <laughs> You know, um, upset him because there is no don't poke no the bear with him. You know, so I think they should re- replace the two people, and you can probably do it today. You can pull her back, send either maybe Brian Maloney could go uh, and give him the authority, go and sign a deal. We'll <laughs> oh, accept it. Okay, Bob. Okay. Thanks okay. for that. Bye bye bye. Uh, do you think there would be any difference, Jerry and Mark, if there was somebody else handling the negotiations, or do we well, have interests that are interests? Well, first of all, Brian Moroni would be a colossal disaster. He's the one that penned the initial deal. <laughs> Pre-NAFTA, we had a trade surplus in manufacturing. Today, we have a hundred and twenty billion dollar deficit. If I look at Stephen Harper's track record, I just take a look at the the, the Korea trade deal. Since we signed the Korea trade deal, the the numbers of Canada's exporting to Korea versus what they're importing to Canada, uh, to Canada has changed significantly in favor of the Koreans. I take a look at the auto industry. Korea, they ship about 150,000 vehicles a year to Canada. We ship 200. And all of a sudden, we sign a trade deal with them that makes it even worse. So sending Stephen Harper to negotiate another trade deal, I would argue, would be a complete disaster. Christian Freeland's brilliant. She's tough. She's smart. She's not taking any of his crap. I mean, I think uh, she's handled Lighthizer very well. I think the Canadian team, headed by Steve Rahul, are brilliant, smart. Look, the bottom line is anybody can fold. That's easy. Anybody can listen to Donald Trump and say, what would you like, sir, and fold. 
But that's not going to be in our best interest in the long term. Mark? Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I actually, you know, um, I like, since I've worked on both sides of the border, I kind of think the Americans sometimes have a, have a little bit easier time of it because they have, in these, in these key positions, they have people who are very knowledgeable about their files. Um, Chris Freeland is a talented woman, as far as I can tell, um, but she doesn't really have any background in anything that she's doing. And, and, you know, that's our system. I think it's bad, and I think, I think it shows. She's up against Lighthizer, who was in the Reagan administration. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the depth of what, of what she's up against. And I think that some of her posturing, I mean, you talk about the, the name-calling, but, you know, there was a New York Times article where, where she went off on, on Trump's pretty unveiled messages about him. It didn't seem very diplomatic. So she doesn't seem very diplomatic to me, and we're dealing with a guy who's got an enormous short fuse. I don't understand. I think it's too late to trade to change her, I guess, in mid-court. But it would be nice if, if somehow they could pull her back a little bit. Um, I did read this morning, I think, that the prime minister's principal secretary, Jerry Butt, was on a plane going to Washington and it was going to meet up with her. He's someone, you know, who, who has a more political nous, I think, is the word, the phrase I guess people use. And if he's going to actively involve himself in it as opposed to lower-level people in the prime minister's office, that probably would, 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 be, would be a good thing. But I am, um, you know, the professional civil service, I've had this role in Ontario. You know, I was the, the chief, the head of the, the legal department in the Ministry of Economic Development and Trade. You know, you can have a professional civil service, but it really depends on whether the politicians listen to you. And uh, I, I, I know in my experience, they don't always listen to you, so you try to make sure that the positions that you're advising them are put in the cabinet minute, and when they're declassified 50 or 75 years from now, People will know exactly what the professional civil service advised. And more than one occasion since this has begun, I, I have to say I do wonder to what extent this government is actually following professional advice. Okay, well, uh, say I think very safely the same can be said about the Donald Trump administration. Let's take a call from Alan Brantford. Hi, Al. How are you doing there? Fine. My, my question to your guest, Libby, is, is, is I, I read or I heard that the Europeans have a better the Europeans in the Panama and the Pan Pacific have a better dairy deal with Canada than the United States do, who have been with them for, with us for a long, longer time. Mark, it's true. It's, it's, it's true because we agreed with, we agreed to make concessions to the United States in the context of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think that if we were tomorrow going to make exactly the same concessions, it would probably go a long way to to to, to helping out help us helping us get out of it now. The argument that we've been putting forward is we don't want to make those similar concessions again because we want to get something else back. It may well be that we're going to have to ante up what we gave in the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, in the same way that the Europeans bought more soya beans and the same way that the Mexicans agreed to the $16 wage rate thing. That's probably going to lead to more automation in the Mexican auto industry than the hiring of actually Mexican citizens. And we're, we're the only country in the world that has a supply management board. Am I right on that? I think we're one of the last. I, think, I, I can't think of anyone else that does it. Most people do, uh, you know, the Australians are the ones who phased it out. So we're, you know, there are different ways of supporting agriculture. I do get that. And we obviously don't have the purse that uh, the Europeans and the Americans do. So we've chosen to, to act on supply as opposed to providing subsidies. But at the end of the day, as I said, there's no other country of our trading partners that actually agrees with what we're doing. So Trump would get tremendous support from everybody else in the world if he manages to make, get, make a change to Canadian supply management. Okay, Al, thanks for your yeah, call. You, Let's yeah. go to uh, Joe in Toronto. Hi, Joe. 
Joe? Hmm. I think uh, I think I pressed the wrong button. I, Joe, I'm. Uh, Joe, are you there? Okay. Uh, so much for Joe. <laughs> Uh, he didn't like what I said. Didn't like what you said. No, he wanted to talk to Jerry. <laughs> he said he was a uniform okay. member that didn't agree, but, uh, you know, uh, he's not here to make his case. Uh, so uh, we're starting to run out of time on this, but let's take a call from Martin in Brampton. Hi, Martin. Oh, hi, Libby. Go I'm ahead. Sorry? Am I, uh, are you there? It's Libby. Go ahead. You, you're you on the oh, air. Yes. I like Christian, Kristen uh, Freeland. I think she has a problem. She needs somebody to go down there and talk, and I suggest Luca Brazzi, so we can go down and let Donald Trump know <laughs> that, uh, well... Here's the offer you can't refuse. <laughs> okay, no, I think he's the one giving us the offer we can't refuse. Martin, uh, thanks for that. Um, am I right about uh, who's the godfather in this? Jerry? I think you're right. Go ahead, Mark. No, I, look, I, I, think, I think that, I think that the, the Americans are obviously a much bigger economy. They have much more say of what's going to happen. So really, the question is, how do we get out of here? How do we find a safe exit ramp? I think the Mexicans have shown us that it's possible to find an exit ramp with Trump. So have the Europeans before us. And I think we just have to figure out a way to do it. And, and, and um, you know, the, the prime minister has a lot of political capital. Um, you know, he's got to use some of it. Uh, he hasn't used any of it on that, as far as I can tell. And Jerry? Well, I think there, the deal is there to be had. And, and um, if, if you look at all of the bluster that's happened, whether or not it was, was in Asia or Europe, there always was a deal that managed to get carved at the end of the day. But as we're moving forward on NAFTA and as we're moving forward to pulling together some key pieces this week, we can't forget that there's tariffs on softwood lumber, aluminum, steel, um, paper. we got to make sure that we tighten up the loose ends before we move forward because the they tie up a couple of the loose ends and then leave some key outstanding issues that are having a huge negative impact on our economy. We can't like it make we have to make sure that doesn't get lost lost in the shuffle. Okay, well, oddly enough, I'm feeling a little encouraged after talking to both of you, and of course, we are going to be following this very closely. So, thank you for encouraging me. I hope our listeners are a little encouraged too. But we uh, watch and wait with bated breath. Thank you to you both. Great. Have a good day. Thanks for having me on. Nice to talk to you, Jerry. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.